For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's now hear from Stuart. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. And um, we're going to continue this, this morning's study from where Neil left off last week, uh, the end of Ephesians chapter 1. And um, just to ask the question, really, where do we fit in? Do you ever feel like, where do I fit in in, um, in the church, in the Christian life? Am I significant at all? Do I matter? The George uh, Bernard Montgomery, the Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, when I read his life story, one thing he tried to do at the, to, as the war went on, he tried to make it important for every, the ordinary soldier where they fit in the whole battle plan, that the ordinary Tommy in the trench, in the truck, they, they, they knew the strategy in one sense. And that's what Paul is doing here. Uh, he's, in these first few verses, he's, the, the great sentence that summarizes this letter really is, and, and, and God's battle plan is in verse 10 of chapter 1, uh, God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth under the one head, even Christ. And that's, that's what Paul is setting out. And um, here he is, he's in prison, and yet he just explodes with, with worship and praise in this, as he starts, you're 202 Greek words, he just explodes. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just full of it as he, as he spells out uh, all the things that Neil related to them last week, you know, that what he's done, he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us in Christ. He's uh, given us a, a security, a great hope. And the great thing is, it's all because we're in Christ. That's his great theme, uh, he's gonna develop that. It's, I suppose the, a poor illustration would be when um, uh, Kate, um, Middleton, when she married Prince William, all that he possessed, his estate, his wealth, etc., in one sense was now shared with her because she was in union with him. And, and Paul is saying to a far, far more significant sense, we are joined with a living God because of Jesus Christ. And, and that's how he starts off. And so he comes to this, this end of this first paragraph, 
the longest sentence in the Bible. And he's unloaded this great truckload of truth to, to, these, to these people. And, um, but he says, he's thinking, you can, feel, you can feel his mind ticking over. Have they got this stuff? And so he goes on and, and look, he says, for this reason, because of what I've told you, the gospel I've told you, this is where we start. He says, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. And um, it, it, they are genuine Christians. You know, they are Christians. They've, as he says here, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints are two acid tests of what a Christian is. You've put your faith in the, the, Jesus Christ. He's fully God and he's fully man and you've trusted him. And the proof of that, the outworking is your love for all the saints. And he, and, he, and he gives thanks. And there's nothing like thanks and, and thanksgiving to sort of open the human heart to, to all the activities of God. But Paul now, he, he sets this model prayer. He, just, he, he prays here and then again in chapter 3. And we'll just follow this through just because it's so useful. And um, because he, he he, he believes, he thinks that actually a lot of these great truths have got stuck. You know, we, we see them with our mind, but Paul wants them to get them into our, into our hearts. That's his, his burden. Uh, you know, these great things, we hear them and we read them, but they get stuck and Paul is praying. And so this is a great prayer. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, and um, so when you start praying, the first thing you have to do is stop, pause. To whom am I speaking? And it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a nameless, faceless, philosophical God. No, this God has revealed himself perfectly and completely in Jesus. He has made him known. No man has seen God at any time, but the, the only son who was in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. But he goes on, actually. And he says, he is the glorious father. See, Jesus' desire is that we'll know his father. He has come to lead us to his father. He's the intercessor. He says, when you pray, say, father. So what is this father like? Well, he says, he is a glorious father. The father of glory. That's what he says. He's the father of glory. And uh, that really means he is the summation of all that is perfect. All, every perfection reaches its peak in him. He is perfect in love, perfect in power and wisdom and righteousness and um, strength, patience, kindness. Everything reaches its peak in the living God. He is the Father of glory, the glorious Father. Now, he's saying that, that we might know to whom we are praying, but also God's desire is that we might share in that glory. That, that's the gospel. That's what it's all about in a wonderful, wonderful sense is that we might become sharers of this great gospel. And, uh, and this is uh, what he's done by his spirit. He has brought us to life and uh, we, become, we begin to enjoy this glory. We'll unpack it in a minute. And one day we will have a glorious body like the Lord Jesus' risen body. So Paul starts praying. So let's look at it. 
So how should we pray? Well, he, first of all, let's remind you, he, he knows there are believers, their faith in the Lord Jesus, and their love for all the saints. And he, they've also experienced the power of the Spirit to some degree. He says in verse 13, you've been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. They'd, they'd had a measure of assurance. They'd been sealed, they'd been baptized, if you like, in the Spirit. But he realizes that that's not enough. Um, and it's interesting what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray that they'll be successful or happy or, um, you know, fulfilled or they'll be wealthy or healthy or they'll have miracles or the church will grow. No, no. He addresses the greatest need of every Christian because he realizes in one sense we have two pair of eyes. We have the eyes that we look through and we see the physical world around us. And then we have the eyes of our heart that really perceive and get it, that understand the truth. Jesus said this, remember, when he, when he was talking about one of his parables, he says, seeing but not seeing. In other words, you think you've, you understand, you think you've understood it, but really you haven't got it. And, and that's really what we, we're going to think about this morning. And uh, let's just backtrack. See, every, all of us are born blind, if you like. Our spiritual optic nerve has never been developed. And he's going to go on in chapter 4 and says, you were in darkness. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, you know, the man without the Spirit does not receive the things that come from the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He cannot receive them. He cannot understand them. He says, and um, there is a sense in which we need, when we're born again, our, we begin to see and the optic nerve is, as it were, is connected. But still, there is a dullness. There is an opacity. There is a, a cloudiness. It's like if you've got a cataract on your eye, there's a, a haziness. And Paul knows that. And that's what he's praying for. And he says, I, I pray I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, to give you the spirit of wisdom and, no, and, and revelation. And um, see, our, our spirits are just clogged up with all kinds of stuff. Sport, work, money, I don't know, leisure, anxieties of different kinds, our family, and we're just clogged up. And Paul knows that we need revelation. You can do the stuff even, the Christian stuff. One of the most frightening characters in the Bible is Judas. He goes out with the 12. He lays hands on the sick and some are healed. Demons are cast out by him. And when they come back, they don't say, oh, Judas, he was hopeless. No, no, he's involved. But he hasn't got it. He hasn't got it. He can do the stuff and that's the frightening thing. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, some people said, you know, we... We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We work miracles. Jesus said, well, I never endorse you. I never knew you. And so Paul is praying desperately. We need the Holy Spirit. Even now, even now we're Christians. And, uh, and he has these four requests, four requests. And uh, we'll hurry through them as best we can. The, the first is the most important in one sense. It's, it's the big one. And he says, I pray that you may know him better. This is the purpose of life, said Jesus. That they, Jesus said, they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That is the purpose of life. You can be born and go right through life and miss it. 
successful, wealthy, but actually you missed the purpose for which you were placed on earth. You've missed it. And this is what God is after for us, what Paul is praying for. The knowledge of himself. It's not a casual or a superficial thing. The word he uses here, actually, is an exact word. It's a sort of, there's a certainty. It's an experiential thing. It's a, it's a profound knowledge. And um, we say, well, that's not for me. I'm just an ordinary bloke. Paul is writing to ordinary people. Half of the people he's addressing would probably be slaves in the Roman Empire. There'd be some were ex-thieves, some had been soldiers and housewives. The whole cross-section, not just for Bible students at some seminary. He's not praying that you might pass your exams in Bible knowledge, vital though that is. He's not praying that you might know the attributes of God, that he's a creator, he's almighty, he's omniscient and all that stuff. The devil knows all those things. He, he at least trembles. No, no, he's praying that you might have an immediate knowledge of God, a real acquaintance with God, that you might meet with God. You see, imagine I have a, in my hand, uh, someone said, a, a jar of honey. Now I can tell you what's on this label. It's, uh, you know, where the bees of what flowers have fed off got their pollen and where the actual geographical location where the hives were and who's made it and what day it was. I can tell you all that stuff about this honey. But the point about the honey is you take the lid off and you taste it. And the point of Christianity is not just to read the text, to read the menu. It is to taste and see the Lord is good. It is intellectual. It is a cognitive thing by all means. But also it's an experiential thing and he's praying that we might know something of the glory of God. That we might realize his presence, that we might know something of his sweetness and the preciousness of him. That's what it's about. You can't love an idea in, in the real sense. And that, that really, that's really what the Bible's about in one sense. That, all the saints in the Old Testament knew that's what they're after. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Job says, oh, that I might know where I might find him. The psalmist says, my soul longs for God, the living God. And I could give you many other illustrations. This is the heart of it. To know him, his character, and to know him personally. But the point Paul is saying, you can't do it just on your own. You do need the givenness of the Holy Spirit, even his love. To be told God loves you, fine. But Paul will go on in chapter 3 and, and he says, I pray that, that out of his glorious wisdom, he may give you power with, together with all the saints, you know. That's what he's praying for. That you may, uh, you may know. You may know his, his love. But he says, the only way you can know it is through his spirit in your inner being. And that you, with all the saints, may have to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know the love of God. That's, but what he's saying, you can't do that without the gift of the Spirit. And um, so that's what he's praying for. And that's, where you, that's your true identity. That's where identity comes from. 
we're all craving for after what's identity in my gender or my wealth or my race or my knowledge or my wisdom. Paul, listen, if you really want to know the security of who I am, now you're a believer. You are known and loved by the living God. But quickly, and this knowledge is for all Christians. It's not just for a few elect, select, mystical few. It's for all of us. That's what he's praying for. But secondly, he's praying that you might know the hope to which he has called you. And see, what you have to know as believers that God has called you. Not simply, well, I prayed a little prayer. No, he says, I'm praying that you might have assurance that God has put his hand upon you. You know that he's called you and he will not let you go. His hand is upon you. Nothing will slip from his grip. I want you to know that he's made promises for you. He's made a covenant for, with you, which is sealed with his blood. I want you to know the hope of this calling. And then he goes on and he says, I want you to know the riches. I'm praying that you'll know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul, listen, there's a, when we die, there's a great inheritance, unbelievably wonderful plan for all believers. But we need the Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to know this. See, the sad thing is, many believers, to say nothing of those outside the church, live in fear of death. And... Um, but as Paul says, we have a living hope, which is so incredibly wonderful that I want to, I'm just praying for the spirit that you'll get it. Just imagine, let's assume Richard Branson, um, he, he bequeathed to charity, say, I don't know, 30 billion. And some came to the King's Church, a few million. Now, fortunately, this morning, I've got this checkbook and I know that Richard will underwrite this. And I'm going to just give to certain members of the church a million pounds. And I will write it and you'll be re you may receive it. Now, I can give you this check and it, I, it, it, it won't bounce. Now, what I'm saying is I guarantee you won't say, oh, very nice. Thank you. That's very nice. No, it will affect the whole of your being, your heart and your will and your affections. And that's what Paul is saying. I want this hope to scrub you. The sad thing is the church has lost this hope. He's been robbed of it the last century, and we haven't time to go into it, when Marx and Freud said, oh, you can't believe all that stuff, the pie in the sky, it's just a con, you know, to get your workers working and all the rest of it. And, and the church said, oh, yeah, you're right, we, we, won't, we won't be too heavenly minded. Paul is saying, you cannot be too heavenly minded. God has set this up for you. Christ has come and died for this. You can't be too heavenly minded. He's saying this life is only the beginning. A few hundred, few decades. So we're talking about billions of years of glory. There is a heaven. There is a hell. This life is the time we make, the, we make a decision. And it's very real. And Paul says, I pray that God will open their eyes, that they'll see the incredible glory that awaits them. You say, well, I, I really want to be bothered with this world. Sure you should be. But if you look at history... And I could prove this to you. The men and the women who've done most for society, certainly in the Christian culture, uh, in, in health, education, social welfare, the racial, um, industrial relations, have been men and women who've been at a clear vision of the hope they were going to. They changed the world because they weren't 
stewed up with their own, getting their own little ego satisfied. But not only that, John says, the apostle, he that has this hope in him purifies himself. In other words, you get your proportions and everything right. Get this right and you'll get life right. But actually, this is the way Jesus lived. This is exactly the way Jesus lived. The writer of the Hebrews says, who for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. That's how Jesus lived. And, and, and Paul says, that's how we are to set your heart on things that are above, not on things on earth. And um, we have to do that. We have incredible glory laid up for us. And it's, it's so glorious that our language couldn't express it. And if it could, it would probably, dis, it would probably debase it. Let me just quote C.S. Lewis, the professor at Magdalen College, Oxford, and he writes this in Mere Christianity. Lewis says, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. That is what we're here for, said Lewis, and nothing less. And, and Paul said, I'm praying that you might know this. Jesus says, look, I'm just going to prepare a place for you. If it were, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm, I will come back to you and take you to myself. And the final thing Paul prays for him, in this particular prayer. You know, so we have this call and we have this hope, but will we make it? Well, Paul says you certainly will because I'm praying that you might know the incomparable great power who is, who is working in us for those of us who believe. The, he says I might, I, that you will know that this power that is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. He uses four words here for power in the Greek because he wants to stress, you know, we have power. Now, notice, this is the important thing. Paul is not asking for more power to be given at this stage. He's praying that they will come to trust and appreciate the power of God that is already at work in you. That's what he's doing. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The most incredible miracle that's ever happened in this little planet was the raising of Jesus Christ bodily, physically from the grave. That power is available and in every Christian. Well, you say, I'm just an ordinary Christian. Why would I need all that power? Well, three things, and I simply give you a head, so you'll have to unpack it yourself. Firstly, we have an old nature, the flesh, that constantly wants to do its own thing, that's selfish, lustful, lazy, indulgent, rebellious, you name it. It's in us, an old nature. But now we have the Spirit, and the Spirit is, enables us with our new spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to come, to come against the old nature, and to win, and to be more than conquerors. But not only that, the world is set against us. 
The world, the world doesn't like the believers and the Christian faith. Jesus says, you'll be hated by all men because of my sake. The world won't rise up and count you blessed. Now you're a believer. The world's standards are different. It's, all its principles are different. We, we march to a different tune. And you will be opposed. It will try and squeeze you into its mold. It'll do anything. It doesn't like nonconformists, certainly Christians. And, um, but not only that, Paul, and we'll, you'll come on to it in chapter 6, he says, our problem is not against, it's not just against people. It's against spiritual forces, powers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, the whole demonic warfare. You say, well, I don't know much about that. Well, you go on a little while in the Christian life and you will experience that. It's, it's, it's a battle we will all have to face. But we can win. We can be more than conquerors because of the power that's within us. You see? And when you become a Christian, this power is given. You say, well, I'm just an ordinary person. I just believe. You cannot believe without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. He's brought you to life. You were dead, says Paul, in your trespasses because of your sins. But he has quickened you. He's brought you to life. He's brought you to life. And you're a, every Christian is a walking miracle. And so Paul says, I'm praying. And he goes on to say, now unto him who is able to immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to the power that is now at work in us. Paul says, I'm praying that you'll see that. John says the same. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Peter says the same. We have this inheritance which, is, which cannot, it cannot perish or spoil or fade, reserved in heaven for us who are shielded, who are kept. How? By God's power. This spirit, this power within us. Now Paul is saying, look, you're ordinary folk, you're very good at putting yourself down. I want you to, I'm praying that you will realize this incomparable great power for us who believe that power is the same that was raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That power is in every Christian. So Paul says, look, I keep asking, I keep asking, I keep asking that you might know this power. Now we have to be obedient. We have to study the scriptures. We have to pray. But I keep asking that you'll know this hope. You'll know that you're called. You'll know this power. You'll believe it. You'll walk in the good of it. You know? That, you know, just go back to the honey illustration. You can, you can, you can come to the word in the morning. You say, this is good. I taste this is good. It, but it's the spirit himself who gives this, right? You know? And Paul says, I keep asking, I keep asking. You know, just to finish, there was a group of tourists in North India being led by an Indian leader called Bak Singh, and he took them to see Everest, somewhere probably northeast of Darjeeling. And if you, you can see the range of the Himalayas, and there's Everest. Because they came this morning and... Um, it was cloudy and misty. He could just about make Everest out, just on the skyline. And he said, look, wait, wait. 
no, no, we must be going. We've we've spent long enough. We must go. And um, anyway, no, stay. It's, you've you've not really seen it. Anyway, eventually they said we're going. After an hour or so, because off they went. And sure enough, you know, within an hour or so, the, the mist cleared, the clouds went, and Everest just rose, magnificent, white, like a crown. And Baxing said this. There'll be a cru uh, tourists going around the world saying, we have seen Everest, and they have not seen it. And Paul's desire is that you might see the Lord in the real sense, that you might touch his glory. That is why we're made. Now, it's, you know, you have to wait. It's not try Jesus. Well, I've tried Jesus. Well, it didn't work. No, no. Jesus says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. Sometimes we have to wait months and years, but we, we go on, we hunger and thirst. And the wonderful thing is, he does reveal himself. His spirit does come. We do know the assurance that we are forgiven, but we've got to persist. The church is not a drive-through McDonald's restaurant. No, no, we have to hunger. Your face of the psalmist, Lord, will I seek? And, and he said, yes, Lord, I will seek your face. And we have to do that. And, and that's what Paul is praying. Paul says, I keep on. I keep praying. I keep praying. And we have to pray for our loved ones, for ourselves, for their, that I might know him better, that I might know the hope of his calling, the great and exceeding riches of this inheritance that he has in the, we have in the saints, and the incomparable greatness of his power that is at work in us today. And he does, he does reveal it to us, for all of us. But we have to go for it. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, I just pray that you would write your word in our heart. You would put in a great desire in our heart that we won't be put off by second-hand religion. We will seek your face until you reveal yourself to us, till the clouds disappear, till the, the cataracts are removed, until the eyes of our heart and see it, Lord. Send that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you more and more, better and better, and so live more godly lives for your glory. Amen.